Welcome to a special edition of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and for this special week of Le Mans, Genetic Cars. This is Corvette Racing Tales with Corvette Racing Program Manager Doug Feehan. Doug, as he describes in the beginning of our interview, is the one who helped create this program that now, heading to Le Mans on its 20th anniversary, we absolutely wanted to celebrate this milestone participation, 20 years at Circuit de la Sarthe, starting with the Corvette C5R, now what we believe will be its final participation with the C7R, moving to the C8R next year most likely. Just amazing to think how many generations of Corvettes have competed at the world's greatest endurance race. So on this 20th anniversary, we do start out speaking about the program's origins, its debut, what happened in the early years there, speak about some of the drivers who have really become absolute hallmark, hallmark names of this program, even today, who are still competing, and close with the bigger topic, which I hope folks will appreciate, and that is the impact Corvette Racing has had at Le Mans. Obviously, the event itself, the people of France and Le Mans have had a great, great influence on this American team, this very American team from Michigan, this factory effort from General Motors, but also looking at how the team itself, to my surprise, definitely to the the grandeur of how much impact they have had. Really interesting to hear Doug's thoughts as we close here. If you're not too familiar with Doug, he is a wonderful orator, and he is someone who can weave together great stories and insights, so I must admit, this is one of my favorite interviews in quite some time, all because of Doug and all because of just him being really awesome and helping to share one of his great passions of his career, probably something he will look back at as the defining thing in his career, and that is Corvette racing. So let's get going with Doug, helping us to celebrate 20 years of Corvette racing at Le Mans as the team goes for yet another win, brought to you by Cooper Tires the Justice Brothers, and Genetic Cars. So, Mr. Feehan, we are celebrating Corvette Racing's 20th visit to the 24 Hours of Le Mans. If we're looking at numbers, eight class victories from the 19 races held so far, that is a number any team would be jealous of. Before we get into some of the backstory, the early days, and just Talk about this uh, 20 years heading to Circuit de la Sarthe. Give us some thoughts on where we are at in 2019, maybe coming out of the test day and the speed shown there in the GTE Pro category by the C7Rs and what you are thinking or expecting race-wise once we get into Saturday and Sunday. Sure. I mean, obviously, um, we were pleased with all that we learned during the test day, keeping in mind it is, in fact, a test day. It's not qualifying. It's not the race. Um, but we came out of that with a car that's probably the most drivable car we've ever had here, which is top marks for everybody involved, the hard work by the engineers, obviously the work by the drivers. And you might say, well, with a seven-year-old car, you know, what do you attribute that to? Obviously, you know, gathering the knowledge. But keep in mind, now we've got a lot of time on what we're still classifying as the new tire or the Lamar tire, which we didn't have last year, OK? 
Okay. So that's been very helpful. Obviously, the engine guys have worked diligently on, uh, on uh, formatting the motor for both uh, performance and for fuel mileage, which I think is going to play a key role in this year's race. And, and we spent uh, more so than in any years past, um, we had the drivers in the simulator. And uh, they, they like that. Our simulator is uh, pretty advanced. And, and I think that they have picked up a, a, a lot of great uh, training direction utilizing that tool. So when you put all those things together, we're, we're, we're looking at, uh, at, at pretty a, a, a car that's pretty compatible to each one of the drivers that we have situated in it. And, and they're very, very pleased with that. And at the end of the day, as I've always said, the guy who wins this race is the guy who spends the least amount in pit lane. Not the guy that has the fastest car. So if if we can give these guys something that's really comfortable to drive, that they can they can move around in any weather and any traffic, and we get great execution by uh, by our crew guys, which we always do, um, I think it's going to be a very competitive race. Let me ask one follow up to this, Doug, before we get to history, and it does actually tie into history a little bit, knowing how you and I, whenever we get a chance, we try and wax about the days of old that we loved well this is modern yeah. era uh there's a little bit of sorrow for me knowing that what has been an amazing annual gathering at le mans in gte pro with now the four gt program also the bmw m8 gtes we've had the announcements from both of those rivals that this will be their last mm-hmm. le mans any thoughts uh as a, a hearty competitor who values success based on who you have to get past to earn it. Any thoughts on this being the last for those two brands going up against them, at least for now, at Le Mans? Right. Uh, well, 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 clearly that's not, that's not great news. Um, however, I'll, I'll temper that with saying this, that I've, I've been around the sport long enough to uh, understand that it operates on a sine wave basis. Uh, this isn't the first time that we will, we will have experienced this, and, and it probably won't be the last time. In addition, I can tell you that uh, I know um, from uh, WEC, you know, Ganassi Racing Europe perspective, that they're still working diligently. I know Larry Holt's involved. I've talked to him briefly. Um, I, 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 I know that they're trying really, really hard to, to be able to place one or two cars so that they can continue their participation in the WEC. That would be a good thing. And I also know that Chip Stateside is looking to do that, that same thing. So, I mean, until, uh, the grid rolls out at Daytona next year and, uh, at, uh, whatever the first race of the year is for, uh, for WEC, I'm not certain where they're leading off after this silly season thing, but, uh, uh, that's when, you know, that's when I'll have full remorse for, uh, the departure of what has been a, a, a great and, uh, and, uh, honorable, uh, competitor in, in, in Ford. And the same goes for BMW, although we'll get to still get to see our friends stateside, uh, we'll miss them at Le Mans. But, you know, I, I've also learned that, that in these, what we classify as adverse times or, or, or times of, potential dwindling fields that sometimes energizes other manufacturers to come aboard. And, uh, our plans obviously are to stand pat on the, on the, on the cars we got. We, we 
cherish our, our involvement in the IMSA thing, and it has proved to be very beneficial for us. And obviously, uh, Lamar serving as the cornerstone and, and um, what we use and, and leverage as our European uh, program, uh, we, 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 we highly value uh, our participation here. So um, everybody's in the same boat, whether it's Porsche or Aston or BMW or Ford or Ferrari or ourselves. Uh, we just have a different paddle. And so when you lose one or two paddles, you just kind of keep pumping and uh, hope you can get a couple more in the boat before too long. So um, am I troubled by it? Yes, I'm saddened more than I am troubled because I've been through this drill many, many times before, and I'm hoping that they are able to find some uh, find some competitors out there who are willing to take their product forward. That being Ford, and uh, and we look forward to seeing our BMW guys at IMSA. Let's wind the clock back, Doug, to the year 2000. We uh, survived Y2K. Fortunately, uh, we're able <laughs> to head to Le Mans and hold a little 24-hour race there. That was the debut for the Corvette C5R. How crazy right. is it to think that, uh, in terms of the road car, you know, we're not too far away from the the public debut of the C8R. I mean, we've had multiple generations of Corvettes come along during the team's visit to Le Mans. Let's go back to 2000, though, looking at a driver rotation that looks like you just backed up a van to the insane asylum uh, and decided to load in Kelly Collins, Frank Freon, Andy Pilgrim, and then the truly insane car, Ron Fellows, Chris Nifel, and Justin Bell. Uh, tell us yeah. about this debut. What was it like getting this team ready to go to France for the first time, formulating the players, both drivers and crew? So many folks have kind of become legendary as part of the yellow American brand here. What was this year 2000 assembly like? It was, it was a, an incredible experience. And, and I, we have to go back even a little further because as, as Herb Fischel and myself were, for lack of a better term, dreaming about going to Le Mans, okay? And it, it made for great fodder over lunch and dinner. Uh, but as, as, as we were moving down the path of, of maybe potentially getting there, Herb had said to me, Doug, you need to, you need to go over. Okay, you need to go over and, and, and see this event. And I said, Herb, I said, come on, I've spent my entire life racing. I've been to every racetrack you can possibly think of. I said, what am I going to learn by getting on an airplane, flying all the way over to Europe, finding my way to Le Mans and watching a race there? Well, Dougie says, this is, this is different. Le Mans is different. Uh, you know, it's just you, you've got to see it. It's a different animal. And I, and I push back. I mean, just just. You know, saying, I don't need to do this. Quite frankly, did I think I needed to do it? No, I really didn't think I needed to do it. And secondly, I had never been overseas. I'd never owned a passport. Uh, I didn't speak the language. I, I wasn't thrilled about immersing myself in that environment just on the if come that maybe someplace five years down the road we were going. Okay. I mean, I just didn't see the value in it. I wasn't comfortable in doing it. So I resisted. Well, eventually he won out. Okay, and and it, you know it caused me to think, and and I'm, you know, I, I'm not right all the time, <laughs> damn near most of the time, but not all the time. And this was one of those moments where I had to admit that maybe he was, maybe he was right, maybe I did need to go see this. So I hop on a plane, fly over, find my way, and it was filled with 
trepidation and getting lost and not figuring out where I was. And I was not a happy camper and, uh, drive into the racetrack and immediately upon coming down the little entry road, you come down a hill under a viaduct, you made a, a make a little right-hand turn and on your left are those three giant orange spires, 24 hour DeMaul. The moment I saw those, it was really weird. It was surreal. I, I thought to myself, damn, I, I'm, I'm, I'm at Lamont. And, and, and just, just that inkling of, Maybe I needed to see what this was about. Drive in the gate, get in there, park, start walking around, taking in everything I was seeing. And it was massive. I was drinking from a fire hose. I went instantaneously from what the hell do I need to go to see another race where I've been every place, done everything, to how the hell are we ever going to do this? It was an amazing transformation in my thought process. And I actually thought, there's no way. There's no way we can possibly ever make this happen. There's just so much, so much to have completed, so many things you have to do, so many T's to cross, I's to dot, so much travel, so much accommodation, hotels, food, uh, pit garages, equipment. Everything is different. The fittings on Gas bottles are different. The electricity is different. I mean, it was just, I came away, came back home. He said, what do you think? I said, I, I, I don't know how we're going to do this. <laughs> I don't know how we're ever going to do it. Well, lo and behold, it was a few years later. Time came forward and and the uh, number came up and it looked like we were going to go. And everything that I had thought about, all the things that I thought, I don't know how we're ever going to do them, pretty much came through. I don't know how we did it. We were very, very fortunate. We hooked up with a gentleman by the name of Benoit Froger. Benoit has since passed on. But he was a marketing director here for 21 years, and he became our liaison. He actually was our team member. Without his guidance, without his direction, without his knowledge, and without his passion for Corvette, I can tell you we would have never achieved anything. He was instrumental in, in, in planting our stake in the ground and, 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 and getting us you know, to the point where we could actually function. And that first year we were chasing it every single day, every hour, every minute, uh, leading up to and during the event. It was one hectic wet mess, um, but a wildly valuable learning experience. It was, uh, it was pretty damn incredible. I'm not sure, but I think we ended up on the, did we end up on the podium that year? Yeah. You finished third and fourth, uh, Kelly, wow. Frank, and Andy were third in GTS, yeah. and actually the sister car yeah. was fourth. I mean, and that's part of the really impressive opening of Corvette Racing's yeah. account at Le Mans, because not only, Doug, did you guys land on the podium first time out, you came back the following year, finished 1-2, and this is inserting yeah. one of our mutual favorite characters on the planet Earth, Johnny O'Connell. Plus, yeah. uh, the person known as not my brother, Scott Pruitt, as well. That's yeah. also has to be an interesting story of, as you said, drinking from the proverbial fire hose on your debut yeah. to be able to come yeah. back the next year, actually the next year and the next year, uh, two yeah. years in a row and run one, two. What was it like in the bit of maybe an obvious question, but what were the things you recall that either got easier or made more sense having gone through this in year one to come back in year two and run one, two. 
Well, n- nothing got easier. All right. But 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 we be, as anyone would, I mean, we became more knowledgeable. We we had gone back and spent a lot of time recapping all the things we did right, of which there were not many, and all the things we did wrong, of which the list was pretty endless. And then we immediately, upon returning, started planning for next year. Although we were still racing in in the states, I knew right then that we could, we did not have a moment to spare, and we started right away and looking at how we can improve and 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 make better and where we could get equipment we needed and you know, improvements we could make to the pit spot, pit box and how we could choreograph our pit stops because it was totally different over there. The rules were entirely different. We had never seen rules like this. And, you know, crew guys had to wear armbands and only certain guys could go over at certain times. And, I mean, it was one guy could stop the car. He couldn't do anything else. I mean, we had a lot of things that we had to pick up on while we were there. So, obviously, the second year, we, we were much better equipped to compete. Uh, we had made advancements in the car, both from a drivetrain standpoint and, and aero and handling. So it was a more sophisticated vehicle that we had. We advanced um, in, our, in our engineering area to help the guys with setup. Uh, and then obviously adding uh, uh, a guy who had been there before and Johnny O'Connell played a huge role he you know because it, it becomes a team mentoring thing it's not just johnny or just the car that he's assigned to it's the whole team learns from the benefits so they they turned to him and looked for him for her his lessons learned at the racetrack and and, and they covered a, a wide array of things not just in the car but just you know how you get back and forth to the racetrack where you park i mean all those little things you, you can't believe they sound silly but everything here is hard if you don't know what you're doing everything here is hard and um, we were just able to, you know, bring in Frank Freon on board, obviously having uh, somebody who, who spoke fluent French in our driver core. We had Benoit, who also spoke French. Um, that helped us immeasurably. Uh, it, was, uh, it was the beginning of a long process. And I can, I can tell you this, that there has yet to be a year where we have competed here where we haven't gone home and, and know that we could do something better than what we just exhibited. That has been, it has been one long, continuous process of improvement. Let's talk about something else that was introduced from the outset and remains today, and that is the signature sound of a Corvette, whether it's C5, 6, or 7, a Corvette V8. We've run out of ways to describe it rumbling thundering ground pounding ground shaking regardless 20 years later and we could probably spend a half hour naming all the different cars that the corvettes have competed against at le mans but still doug 20 years later close your eyes you know at all times when a corvette is passing by share thoughts about that because that has also become part of the team's narrative everyone knows the sound of an american v8 trying to attack whatever's near it yeah it's uh it's what i refer to as ground pounding american thunder okay and it was uh openly accepted and revered by everybody in france because they don't have anything over here that makes that noise they have they have nothing that makes that noise and so they had remembered it from the early days of Lamont because again it was two valve small block chevys that were screaming around here at that point in time well over 200 miles an hour down the Mulsanne. um it was uh it was and is 
a, a, a an oral signature uh, at three o'clock in the morning, regardless of where you are, even in the city of Lamar, you can hear those cars beating it down that backstretch. The fans love that. They they uh, identify and associate with that as far as we're concerned. They recognize that that is uh, our unique signature, that it belongs solely to us. Uh, they embrace it, and they love it. Every time we start that car up in pit lane uh, on a day when fans are doing their pit walk or rolling through, a crowd immediately gathers so that they can get up close. Because you get up close enough, and not only can you hear it, you can feel it. You can feel those pulses out just vibrating. Uh, throughout your body, they they enjoy it. It's uh, it's been it's been twenty years of great music uh, to listen to those bad boys singing around this racetrack. It's pretty cool. The heartbeat of America, if I remember my yeah. uh, advertising campaign from the nineteen eighties. Yeah, let's jump to two thousand two, Doug, and that to me is a very significant year for Corvette racing because in this mildly evolving driver lineup year after year you bring in a guy with a big day glow g on the side of his helmet uh that being oliver gavin and you want to talk about uh enduring members of the team we obviously think of you we think of dan banks we think of gary pratt and a few others it's really hard for anyone who knows about the corvette racing team at le mans and in racing in general uh without having that that lovely lanky Brit come to mind. Share some thoughts with us about Ollie's introduction. Why you guys wanted to bring him in starting in two thousand two, and the fact that you've never let him go. You know, I had I had uh, seen Oliver because he was doing one offs, and he had done he had done something in a prototype car, open prototype car. Uh, and, and Ron Fellows had known him or met him or something. And he, and, and Ron, Ron tipped me off and said, you know what? You should really check out this Oliver Gavin guy. So I started watching him and then I forget where we were. It might've been Daytona or Sebring. I think he was running for, uh, Hans Conrad and in a Celine. And we were involved in some kind of epic battle. I think we ended up winning that battle with him, but he did it just a damn good job. And, uh, you know, there was a, a opening that was, that was, that was come and due. And, and he just looked like a, he looked like a pretty good talent to me. So I made contact with him, asked him if he'd be interested. He said, hell yeah. He came over, did a little test with us, started running and, and right away, uh, showed some speed. Okay. And, uh, that was good, but he was struggling a little bit with, uh, crashing. Quite frankly, he'll remember this, and I've, I don't tell this story often, but but we can share it on the anniversary here. Being as he's getting ready to start, I think this is his nineteenth uh, Lamar with us. I mean, the um, fact that you'd hire a pensioner like that, you know, keeping him at yeah, old age home—it's really kind of you, Doug. Well, he was, in those days he wasn't that old. <laughs> so, at, at any rate. Um, I, I think we were we were either at Sears Point or Laguna or someplace. I, I, it escapes me, but I, I can envision it. He's leading the race. Okay, we got this victory wrapped up. There's nobody even close. He has done a marvelous job, and he's passing a back marker, whose name shall go unmentioned because he's still active in the sport, and he runs into him, 
crashes, crashes out of the race. We don't win the race. And this was about the third similar episode, not quite as dramatic as leading and, and doing it, but, you know, just going fast all the time and, and running into things. So I, I can remember, and he remembers this too. He got out of the car, got done, got wiped off, did his little debrief. I said, we need to talk. We went around the back of the trailer. We didn't have a trailer with an office in it at that point in time. We sat down in the back of the trailer and I explained to him where I thought he was doing a wonderful job. Okay. And I also explained to him and what we had expected from him from the standpoint of not hitting anything, don't break anything and keeping it on the racetrack. And I said, you're plenty fast enough. You're meshing well with the team. But when you do stuff like this, you're not going to last here for a very long time because we can't have that. You really need to pay special attention to what's going on there. And he said, I understand. I, I get it. I said, this isn't, you know, one guy in the car. It's a whole team of guys and you got another driver. And when you make mistakes like that, everybody feels it. So it's not just you. It's, it's everybody. It's a reflection on everybody. He says, I understand. From that day forward, he made a complete transition into being what I consider to be one of the best all-time road racers ever. When you think about it, this guy has accumulated 50 victories in a Corvette. 50. For the same team, same brand. That's that's a record that will, I, I mean, I can pretty much tell you that will never be broken. Um, and that's that's how he... That's how he adjusted to the way we were doing business, which was a, a mark of his level of professionalism. And I think when he looks back upon that day where we sat on the back of that truck, he probably looks back on that day pretty fondly, thinking it was those words and that conversation that we had uh, that allowed him to go forward and, and accomplish everything he's accomplished. A couple of years later, 2004, Doug, you had the introduction of a number uh, of another, call it Corvette Racing Lifer definitely become a lifer that being this this somewhat diminutive dane who uh i just have visions of red-faced uh mastery inside the car yan magnuson he likes to pass yeah. people a lot and oh, he doesn't yeah. do it with a big old smile and oh what a lovely day at the park he is yeah. Again, he might not be the biggest uh, physically, stature-wise, but, man, you're not going to come across a harder fighter. Tell us about Yan's not just introduction to the team, Doug, but also what he's come to represent over the year in terms of spirit. Yeah. Yan is uh, he's an assassin behind the wheel. I, I, can't, I can't. I'll be honest with you. If I'm a racer and I'm looking in my rearview mirror and I see it's him behind me, that's the last guy I want to see behind me. It just is, okay? Uh, and, and that's not to say, I mean, we got great guys. Look at the driver lineup we got. I mean, we talked about Oliver. We know him again. Antonio Garcia, Tommy Milner, Mike Rockefeller, Marcel Fossler. I mean, you don't want any of those guys behind you, but you really don't want Yan behind you, okay? Because he goes into killer mode when he gets in the race car. He, um, I had, we had battled with him. He was working for Pro Drive driving a Ferrari. We were in a battle for uh, the championship that year. And uh, we ended up winning the championship by one point. I mean, just barely eked it out. 
But uh, I can remember that, that watching him because I knew what his history was. I, I kind of liked him as a guy because I, it was kind of like me looking in the mirror and I saw how he things he did as a young man and pretty cavalier and not thinking a whole lot about his future. I mean, I had a time in my life when I pretty much uh, performed that same way. <laughs> Some would argue I haven't changed. Um, at, at, at that point, uh, my phone rang after the conclusion of that year. And uh, um, he had put a move on, on, on Johnny in, in one of the races near the end, end, of the, end of the season and ended up winning the race. Johnny was leading, and Yan put a pretty good move on him. And uh, ended up winning the race. Johnny finished second, and that has been a topic of discussion between those guys forever. But it was it was pretty cool move. I was impressed with it. Not impressed enough to call him because he crashed every race, with the exception of that one. <laughs> so my phone rings at the end of the year, and it's him. And he says, uh, "Doug, uh, Yan Magnuson." I say, "Yeah, Yan, how you doing?" He says, "Listen," he says, "any chance uh, you might have an opening or something? I'd, I'd I'd really like to see if I couldn't get into the Corvette program." I said, Yan, why on earth would I hire you? I said, I watched you all last year. You hit everything but the pace car. And I said, I'm not sure you didn't hit that at some point in time. I, I, I said, that, that, that doesn't fly here, dude. That's not, that's not how we go racing. He says, no, no, I know, I know, I know I did. But he says, you know, my boss told me he really didn't, he didn't care about that. Is all he wanted to me to do was just to charge forward as hard as I could. And if there was damage in the wake, so be it. We had, we had two cars running and he just, you know, he wanted me to go as hard as we could go. I said, well, you certainly did that. And as I'm talking to him, because I had seen him race, I knew he was pretty good. I could, there was a level of sincerity in his voice and it, it, indicated to me that maybe we were at a turning point in his career. You know, the guy had been wildly talented, Formula One, the rest of it. I mean, won a whole bunch of stuff in Denmark. I mean, the guy, he was just, he was good. He was just wild on the racetrack. Well, and off. But, but I sensed in his voice that he may have been in a point in his career where he was seeking something that he had never had, and that was a home. Mm. All right? And, and I don't, it wasn't, it wasn't a tone of desperation, but it was a tone of sincerity where he, 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 it seemed, it just, he, I just got the sense that he was ready to turn a corner here, no pun intended, to turn a corner and really apply his skills with a program that he thought he might actually have a future with. And so, uh, brought him on. And I mean, the rest was pretty much history. And to this day, you know, guys say, boy, Oliver's been there a long time. Ian's been there a long time. I said, look at, I said, yeah, they have. And at some point in time, their career in a Corvette will be over. It's just not right now, because as I look up and down pit lane, I'm not seeing anybody that I think, oh, geez, I'd much rather have him in the car than Yan. Or boy, I, you know, I, 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 you know, this guy's way better than Oliver. I don't see those guys. I mean, I just don't. And you only have to go and look at when these guys go out and win a pole position or, or, or win a race or, you know, come from sixth place to second place in their last stint, driving through traffic and making amazing moves, just total focus, taking all their racecraft and applying it to that event. Um, hard to find those guys. They're few and far between. And we were, uh, we were obviously the beneficiary of, of bringing Yan on board. And in fact, as it turned out, the, the boy did find a home. And uh, he's had a hell of a career with us, and uh, we've been the beneficiary of that. 
You know, there's a rich vein here, Doug, of uh, Yan coming on board, partnered with Ollie Gavin, Olivier Beretta. We look at yeah. 2004, first overall uh, in class. I apologize. First in class at Le Mans, the C5R. We moved to 2005, yeah. repeat winner back-to-back, this time in the new C6R. Come back in yeah. 2006, three in a row class wins again with a C6R. Yeah, really a pretty phenomenal vein here of three wins in a row. Then we move a little bit later into uh, the the aughts, the 2000s, and there's someone else whose introduction to the team I'd love for you to speak about, and that's Antonio Garcia. And of the many things I've appreciated about Corvette racing over the years is the conversations between yourself, Gary Pratt, team leadership in general, not about driver talent, but talent composition. All right, we have at this race, we have six players. How should we put them together? Strengths, weaknesses, not weaknesses in terms of competition ability, but everyone's a little different. How are we going to bake this cake in each entry to get the most out of it? And I look at this awesome 2009 class winning lineup in the C6R of Johnny O'Connell, as big and as boisterous a personality as you're going to get. Yan Magnuson, a small nuclear device, and then mute Superman. Antonio Garcia, the guy who you're not sure if he actually has a voice or can speak, but good Lord, you put him into a car and this guy becomes a superhero. I love the the composition of this team that wins uh, on its first first time out together at Le Mans in 2009. Tell us about Antonio. Well, I had seen Antonio uh, the previous year. Uh, he was uh, he was at ProDrive in, uh, in Aston, and and I I, I I didn't know about him at all before we got to Lamar, and I can just remember it was it was it was a race where it was dry and then it was wet and it was dry and it was wet, and uh, and you know you you get kind of mesmerized looking at the timing board and you're going back and forth and I'm looking at lap times and every time I would see a great lap time I'd look over and it would be Garcia, Garcia. And I thought, man, oh man. I, this guy's got it figured out. So I watched him all that race, and then I kept track of him on what he was doing for the remainder of the year. And uh, in this case, um, I actually went after him. Uh, I made the call to him rather than in, in, in virtually every other case, guys had always called us, okay, looking for a ride. But I called him and see if he'd be interested, and he was. Uh, and he is it's 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 almost scary when you hear him on the radio in the car he can be involved in the most intense battle okay on the racetrack and get on the radio and it sounds like he's sitting next to you having lunch I mean, there's no, it's not an elevated tone. It's not a more rapid staccato. There's, there's just no change in his voice. And he is, and I'm telling you, he's in a dogfight. It's amazing. I've never, I've, I've never run into a driver that stays as calm in a race car as he does. The ever. only driver in history with a, a pulse rate of one. Yeah. Honest to God. It's, it's incredible. And, and it, that just for him, that just translates into speed. He never, he never loses composure. 
Let's wind down, Doug, looking at a few other names throughout the team's history at Le Mans. One lineup that I'm fond of, someone that I'm so happy to have seen, has also done a wonderful and amazing job of representing the red, white, and blue from inside the Corvettes, and that's Tommy Milner, someone who, mm-hmm. on a domestic mm-hmm. level, was known as a talent I, I'd be lying if I said everyone might have thought, oh, this is just an obvious thing. We need to bring him in, partner him with Ollie Gavin. That's going to be an amazing thing. Not a question of doubting Tommy's potential. We just hadn't necessarily seen that yet on a mm-hmm. true hardcore factory GT week-in, week-out yeah. battle-type scenario. Yeah. What was it about Tommy that you said, huh, I think there's something there because ultimately you've been proven correct? Well, it was, uh, and, and, and as all these guys do, they all have a unique story. All right. Now I knew Tommy's dad forever. Okay. And, uh, I knew Tommy was uh, racing at BMW, but he was in the second chair there. And, um, you know, I, I don't think he would be so proud as to not admit that he wasn't the guy gathering all the, all the headlines. All right. Um, but I, I hadn't really paid any attention to him as a driver on the racetrack. But I knew his dad. So fast forward, Michelin had set up a a program in advance of Petit Le Mans in their hometown, Greenville. Okay. And I think it was called uh, Thursday night at the races or or some Thursday night thunder, some kind of, some kind of event in downtown Greenville where they closed off the streets and they brought in race cars, all right, and different performance cars. And the idea was to get people in Greenville excited about racing and see if we couldn't get them shuttled off to to uh, Road Atlanta, which is only an um, hour drive away, hour and a half drive away, and 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 drive some interest out of out of that hometown. And uh, uh, it was, I mean, it was a great marketing program. I love this thing. Um, and so we're there. We take a we take a vehicle, we take a trailer, we take a car, you know, park it out. We have our own display area. We got this big, big, big old setup. All right. Well, across from us and down the street a little bit. All right. I see a pickup truck pull up with a fifth wheel trailer behind it. Unloads a the BMW GT car. Okay, and I look and it's Tommy. <laughs> he's, he's for all purposes by himself. And he gets a pop-up tent out, and he sets a pop-up tent over the top of the car, okay? And he gets a table and a chair out, and he's got some brochures and some posters or something. And he sits there all day, all night by himself. I, I, I knew right then and there, okay, that the guy had the other side of what Corvette racing is about. Wow. And that's drivers who can identify with our fan base. You know what those autograph lines are, the Corvette Corral. I mean, you know the kind of fan support we have. I saw him do that all by himself that day and that night. I said, you know what? He's got that side of it covered. And so then I started paying particular attention to how he conducted himself in the race car. And it looked pretty good. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, the best I had ever seen, but it was pretty good. So we were going down to Sebring to have a little 
dog and pony and, and, and look at servers. And so Tommy obviously was on the list. And we got down there, and there's some formidable names. I'm not going to name them, but guys you all know and have heard of. Um, I think we had four or five guys down there. And at the end of the day, it was clear cut. It was, it was, it was Tommy. He was uh, head and shoulders above the rest. And after that test, um, we were all convinced, engineering guys, Gary Pratt, myself, uh, that he was going to be our next, our next guy. And uh, made the call and worked the deal, and he was excited, and the rest is history. Once again, we took a guy who had great potential, gave him the opportunity, gave him the equipment, gave him the guidance, and uh, they brought the skill set and have been performing at the highest level since that day. Uh, great addition to our team. Lamar winner, yeah, definitely. Well, let's close yeah. on this, Doug, and this is looking at Corvette Racing's wider impact at Lamar. First of all, we have, and I just think this part's amazing, we have the Corvette curves on every lap of practice or the race. Everyone navigates through the Corvette curves to have the mm -hmm. uh, Auto Automobile Club de l'Ouest name a section of the track after the team, after the brand, yeah. after the model. That speaks volumes about the impact <laughs> that we collectively, this this home spirit, this uh, this home team has had on the event, but also share some thoughts if you could about the train whistle being blown, about yeah. standing out in front of the Corvette garage, uh, and one of the team members, I believe Mike is his name, playing the Star Spangled Banner on the guitar, yeah. about Jake yeah. being yeah. you know spray painted onto uh, the ground in the pit stalls. Just yeah. there's so many things about this team that if it were if this were to be corvette racing's last visit to le mans there are so many signatures and impressions made on the track in the pits in the air through sound I mean, there's just a real true i would say almost marriage between corvette racing and le mans can you speak to some of those wider things that aren't necessarily about drivers and cars and that it gets back to to our early days before we ever came over here and uh, we knew, uh, obviously, we talked about the challenges, the, the physical challenges of, of, of putting together a team and, and getting them transported over here and compete. But, but there were other challenges as well. And, and, and we knew coming over here, there were some real horror stories about how Americans were treated. And, you know, not, not, there, wasn't much, there wasn't much to those stories, although it was a challenge. that We knew we weren't going to be openly embraced as Americans, okay? But we weren't. Uh, we weren't treated badly. We weren't treated rudely, but we wanted to do things, okay, that would endear ourselves to the to to not only the race, but to the town of Le Mans. And Gary Claudio was our marketing manager, and and he was he was just a brilliant guy. I mean he he was a he was a people person. He could he could come up with stuff that he thought would work, and 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 would help us. Um, kind of overcome the stigma of being Americans and actually try and get us to a point where they liked us. All right. Cause we knew that would be helpful. And, and uh, I can remember coming over here the first year, uh, quite frankly, the Corvette had a terrible reputation. I mean, it was pimps, prostitutes and drug dealers who owned Corvettes in France. And, and that's a pretty tough image to shake. Um, 
so so he put together a, a, a just a magical plan. We went to scrutineering, and it was our our very first time here. All right, and and through Benoit Froger, who I'd mentioned previously, we knew that that French people were crazy about cowboy western movies. They love American movies, all American movies. They watch the movies here in English, and 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 they love cowboy movies. So Claudio decides it'd be a great idea. We're going over there. We're going to scrutineering, and we're all going to be in cowboy hats. Okay, so we showed up in cowboy hats, and the fans just they didn't know what to think. They were loving it, but they just didn't know what to think. This was their first exposure to 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 an American team like this. <laughs> and and so and I also set up a program. I said, look, when we get there, the cars were cordoned off. We were down in the center of Jacobin, which is a, just a big old parking lot in front of the cathedral. It's kind of down in a hole. And 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 the cars were, were they arrived early would all be cordoned off. And the people were not even allowed to get close. Each team had stanchions set up to keep them away, you know, just shooing them away. I said, we're not doing that. I said, we get down, and I want you to open that up. And the first kid that comes along, I want you to open the door up, get him in the car, and let his parents take a picture of him inside the race car. Mm-hmm. And then line him up and let's do that for every kid that comes along before before we get called up to scrutineering. We're making memories. We did that. Exactly. And I got to tell you, the first parent was very reluctant because they had spent their lifetime in Le Mans knowing you're not supposed to get close to the cars. So when a team was inviting you to come to the car, you could see the reluctance to do that. But that first dad, I'll never forget him and his little kid, probably kid was probably seven, eight years old. And the kid, of course, didn't know any difference. So he was excited. We got him in the car. David James put him in the car. His dad was snapping pictures. Mom was in the background. Everybody was smiling. The next thing you know, the parents were lined up. The kids were lined up to get their picture taken in the Corvette. It was a, it was a, it was a great moment in time. We finish scrutineering, okay? And so you line up to do the official photograph in that prescribed area for the for the yearbook thing that they do. And and uh, so we all line up, got our hats on, take the picture. And, of course, they're shooing us away. LA, go, 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 go. I said, no, 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 just one minute. Claudio had gotten each of us a beret and a fake mustache. We took off the cowboy hats. <laughs> put on berets and stuck on fake mustaches and stood there and crossed our arms. The crowd broke out in applause. Okay. The, the, the tower on which the photographers were all gathered, you know, that bridge that they erected was shaking so badly because they were laughing so hard. They couldn't take a picture. So they had to wait to get that thing settled down, snap the photographs, the, the, the audience is applauding, okay? And the next day, you look above the fold in Lasarth, which is the regional paper, and, and our first trip there, there's the Corvette team in scrutineering with berets and fake mustaches on. That was the first step in creating what we wanted to do, and that was traditions that would be tied to Corvette because we knew the French culture was a tradition-based country. It's architecture, it's history, it's art. Um, it's literature. Uh, uh, they revere that here. They have huge respect for that. The wonderful museums. They 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 embrace the past. We wanted to do something and things, of course, that would help endear us. And so, when you look forward to all those things you mentioned, Mike West playing the guitar at noon, that was a uh, that was that was huge here. That was huge. People love that. They look forward to it. Mike then had moved on because he went to go do Cadillac program and some other things. We needed something to replace that. We had the train horn. 
We brought that in. We blow that every noon. That's a tradition. When we go to the driver parade, the beads like they do at Mardi Gras, that's part of the tradition. When we finish scrutineering, we hand out posters to all the crowd. That's our tradition. We have a huge banner thanking the people of Le Mans. And you'll see that in pictures. We unroll that and the drivers hold it up. Thank you, people of Le Mans. That's our tradition. That's how we've ensconced ourselves. That's how we've captured the hearts of the people here. And this race is centered around the people of Le Mans. Happens at the racetrack, but believe me, these people own this race, the people who live here. It's been an amazing ride, an amazing experience. Doug, thank you not only for your time, but thank you for what you, the entire team, all the mechanics, everybody who has contributed to these 20 years at Le Mans, representing the USA with such pride and character and class. Uh, Hopefully, in 20 years from now, you and I are doing a 40th anniversary conversation about this. But thanks again for uh, spending some time and sharing some amazing stories with us. Well, Marshall, we appreciate the opportunity. And let me say this. I have been blessed to be face forward of this organization. But but let me be perfectly clear. This is a team effort. Okay. I just happen to be the guy lucky enough to be in front of it. But the work from Jim Miller and Gary Pratt, our engineers, our crew guys, our truck drivers, the machinists back at the shop. I mean, this is. You know, I mean, pick a number. There's 350 people at Pratt and Miller now. And at some point in time, probably every one of them has touched this race car and this race program. And the fact that that our leadership, uh, Mark Kent and Jim Campbell and Mark Royce, have had the trust and the faith and the backing that they provide us to go forward with this. Like I said, I'm just the guy lucky to be in front of it. It's their work. It's their effort. It's their sweat, their blood, their tears, okay, that have driven this program forward. And and, and I can't tell you um, how humbling it is to be associated with people of, of, of that level of dedication and passion. And uh, as I say, I, I feel blessed every day to be part of this. And that was Corvette Racing Tales with Doug Feehan celebrating the 20th anniversary of the team's participation at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Certainly hope that you have enjoyed this. If you're new to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, you might check out marshallpruittpodcast.com, where we have 500-plus episodes dating back to number one with Mario Andretti from May of 2016 in plenty of categories, sports car, open wheel, in-car sounds, ambient sounds, driver features, team owner features, you name it, all they're waiting for your perusal and enjoyment, plus a subscription page where you can choose one of a variety of ways to get every episode the moment that they go live. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper tires, the justice brothers. And for this very special week, the 87th running of the 24 hours of Lamar genetic cars as well, joining in to help us bring all of our content to you. Thank you for listening.